Hello and welcome to Lecture 3A of MGI 514, Project Management Leadership. My name is Brendan Birchmore and this discussion will be all about team leadership in the project context. Now we know projects don't happen in an isolated fashion. We don't work in a silo as a project manager. We always work with other people. There's always a team of some kind. This can often be the case for project managers more than in many other professionals where the project manager more often relies upon the extended resources to contribute to their own ultimate success criteria. This is often because many of these resources that are necessary to complete a project are not in themselves fully accountable to the project manager. The team can have many masters, or the people in the team might have other masters. A project manager may manage the project, but they often cannot manage the team because they don't have enough power and direct control over the team to be able to manage them and specifically allocate resources. So in lieu of this empowerment, this strict empowerment, the project manager needs to lead the team or at least large elements of the team. So what makes a team? A team has a sense of identity as a common identity. Individual people will have their own identity in terms of their own position, their own role, their own contribution. But the team itself can be identified as something that others wish to belong to or can belong to. And this comes out of the alignment in the purpose of the team. So an alignment in what that team is there to do. And it's the leadership of that team that is the representative of that aligned purpose, that definition of why we are all together, why we are called a team. Now, if you don't have that coming from leadership, the team might find their own sense of identity and aligned purpose, but it might not fit what's needed in the context of the project. So the team leadership is defining the vision and the purpose in the context of the project and what the project requires and giving the members of that team something to belong to and a reason to belong to it. So teams are not simply an aggregation of people. A team has an intent. It has a purpose. But let's look at what drives this intent and purpose for a particular team. It comes down to the vision and the team's or the team members' ownership of that vision. So what is ownership? Ownership we talk about as being a willingness to invest, a sense of devotion to the success of something, a loyalty and commitment to that success. It's a personal stake, having a personal invested stake in the outcomes of that vision. This makes it an emotional context, an emotional decision. And it's often defined by how a person would feel if what they have invested in does not succeed. So being aligned, having the team members aligned or having them all have a clear understanding of what the purpose and function of the team is to give them uh, the choice and the encouragement to subscribe to it, that is the team leader's job. Sometimes we, as a team leader, we are defining the vision. We might be empowered to create that definition, but sometimes it's defined by somebody else or by other people. It's defined outside of the realm of the team. And the team leader must be the representative of that vision and represent that vision to the team members and work with it 
to f- help the team members find ways to bond with and feel a sense of ownership of delivering that vision's outcomes. But it's the alignment that is key because it's through this alignment that we get the leveraging of the different members of the team, the engagement with that ultimate purpose. You can have some people engaged and other people not engaged. Then you don't have a true team dynamic. So how do we achieve this? How do we do this? People's sense of ownership of something is directly linked to what they perceive their influence over it to be. So it's about their influence. And it can be perceived or real, but they will react to what they perceive it to be. Even if it's more or less than what they perceive, they will react based on their perception of it. People need to feel that they can shape the outcomes. They can make a difference. People need to feel that they have empowerment and they can use that empowerment to shape what happens. So empowerment is key. People will only feel that they own what they can actually influence. If they can't influence something, if what they do doesn't tangibly matter, then they will feel that they don't tangibly matter. And if they don't tangibly matter to those objectives, then those objectives will not tangibly matter to them. It's a reciprocation. So team leadership needs to map out and understand the way in which the team can influence outcomes and success and help the team to understand those ways in which they can influence things. And through this, the team is empowered. This is part of the team leadership's role. This can be a little bit easy when things aren't too difficult. When it's easy to achieve success, there's little investment required above the normal, the run of the mill. But when things will get a little bit tough, this is the good test of whether or not people are willing to invest emotionally, whether they feel a sense of ownership. And this is when, if they have a sense of ownership, they will deliver to a higher standard as necessary to get through difficult times. So team leadership is about what is emotionally driven for the team members. It's about knowing what matters to them and helping them see why project success matters to them. It's about understanding what motivates them, understanding their own values and their own integrity, but also influencing and shaping their values and integrity. And team leadership does this purely by example. Team leadership is not about setting the rules and guidelines for behavior. It's about demonstrating the expected behavior. It's using and having a blueprint for the emotional response that is expected in others and demonstrating that as a team leader. So a strong part of this setting an example is how the team leader will treat others. This is about whether or not the team leader is perceived as being fair in their assessment of other people, supportive of other people and their challenges or situation, or whether they are seen as being harsh and perhaps derogatory or critical. Now, whether a team leader is fair or harsh or supportive or critical, this relates to the judgment exercised by the team leader, the judgment of people and their judgment of situations, their willingness to contemplate the breadth of relevant facts and take them all into account which is often determined by how quickly judgments are reached. Good team leaders will take enough time to contemplate and seek out all of the relevant contributing factors and information to make a balanced, slower decision than those who will be reacting more quickly rather than deciding in good time. And when a judgment is reached by a team leader, are they making it in a unilateral way or are they making it in an inclusive way, taking on board information and input from other people? 
So as a team leader, how we judge our team will be reflected in how we judge everything else and vice versa. So in how we treat them, they will judge our capability for judgment. But judgment is the balancing of things. It's not just the decision-making. Judgment is the weighing up of alternatives. It's the comparing adequately and then deciding. Judging and decision-making are slightly different things. For many people, the decision part is somewhat easy. It's the weighing up everything in a fair and reasonable manner that is less easy. So team leadership is a lot about the human elements over the technical elements. It's often the emotional over the intellectual. It's about acknowledging that as human beings, our decisions are often largely influenced by the emotional and human aspects of what we contemplate. This is where we apply our judgment. When we use tools in project management, we use many tools, uh, but they're just tools. They're not scripts. And team leadership is an interpretation of the way in which those tools can be used. In contrast, team management is often more about the rules, the processes, the systems, the scripts, the prescriptive things, anything which removes the variables of behavior or the variables of human nature. That's team management. That's about dumbing down the process because we are working with the dumbed down input of human beings. But team leadership is about the opposite of this. It's about leveraging the variables of human nature. It's about leveraging the potential it's about using the human elements. It's about using things such as the creativity and other human qualities. So we say that our processes help, but it's humans that rule. Now, many guides on team leadership in project management, they begin with a suggestion that you have to choose the right people. And that's great when we can. But sometimes, and in fact, quite often, we have little choice about who we work with in our team. We need to work with what we have. How do we do that? Well, it might be interesting to embark upon a plan to change the nature and personality of our team members, a lofty goal and usually quite impractical. But a more appropriate thing is to match activities and input and contribution with the character of the individuals, match the skill with the task, but more so match a sense of ownership with the outcome. When we can choose people in our team, we're often choosing a balance between intellectual capability and emotional capability. The most clever people are not necessarily going to make the best team members if they're not going to feel a sense of ownership and a sense of belonging to the vision of the team. But whatever people we end up having in the team, it is the team leadership that needs to provide the sense of clarity as to the working arrangements and the outcomes they are working towards. So it's not just about the vision. It's about how do we achieve the vision? And the clarity comes from team leadership. The clear working arrangements are just as important as the clear outcomes we are striving towards. And clarity is a very broad and diverse topic for team leadership. We need to provide clarity on everything. But providing a lot of clarity is not about providing a lot of data or even information. Providing clarity is about providing understanding. More often, it's about providing context because we're never going to be in a position that we can provide every single detail to every single person in the team that needs it. What we can provide is a sufficient clarity of understanding so that they will find the information necessary or they will report a lack of it. 
we need a framework for inquiry so that any clarity that's missing or weak will be improved and sought after by members of the team. So this is now about communications. And as a fundamental dynamic of any team leadership, our communications practices are crucial. Well, the way in which people communicate is typically on a reciprocal basis. This is where our ability to be an example in team leadership can be very powerful. By being an example of how communications should take place. One of the biggest challenges or weaknesses in team communications is ignorance. People being uncertain as to how things should be handled or expressed or communicated. Team leadership should discuss openly how things should be discussed, how things should be handled. They should be able to demonstrate the way in which communications should be done, the way in which information is delivered, the quality of that transfer of knowledge, the intent to deliver understanding, not just deliver data, the way in which information should be sought and pursued and accumulated as necessary. These are examples that team leadership needs to do on a demonstrative basis continuously. It is the most effective way of helping others in the team to perform to a similar standard. But there needs to be an expectation that those standards will be adhered to by others. So there needs to be some expectation that those standards will be enforced, that your expectations as team leader on how communication should happen, you will demonstrate those standards and you will expect them to be demonstrated by others. There are some things in team dynamics that should have a lesser degree of compromise and communications is one of those things. Team leadership cannot afford to compromise their own standards even at any point on how things get communicated. So with any team, with any group working together, we need three key things. We need a sufficient energy, a willingness to invest, to do things, and to achieve things, a raw energy source. Secondly, we need a degree of focus, a direction of that energy, directing it towards worthy achievements. And we need an alignment, a collective leveraging of that focused energy so that what the team achieves is more than merely the sum of its parts. Team leadership is the reason that all these three things happen. But it's not just about facilitating all the good things. Team leadership is also about preventing or dealing with the things that can undermine these strengths. Things such as disputes, disagreements, any form of disharmony that runs counter to the objectives of team dynamics. And team leadership is ultimately responsible for making sure that those negatives are addressed and dealt with. This can mean things such as problem resolution, conflict resolution. Again, this brings us back to the issue of fairness. But most importantly, it means as team leaders, we cannot ignore them. Issues that undermine team dynamics must be addressed. They are an intrinsic and crucial responsibility of team leadership. We must act to fix them. But we must also protect the team and the team's dynamics and its strengths from any external destructive forces. This can mean team leadership includes a degree of managing upwards, managing and dealing with the higher levels of organizational or executive management. A good team leader is someone that team members are willing to work with toward a common goal. They put trust in the leader to ensure a positive working environment and a contribution to a successful result for which their part will be recognized. 
This brings us to the end of Lecture 3A. Hello and welcome to Lecture 3B of MGI 514 Project Management Leadership. My name is Brenton Birchmore and EQ is our topic for today. What's EQ? It stands for Emotional Quotient, or often referred to as our Emotional Intelligence. And it's often cited uh, against or in contrast to its original measuring cousin, IQ, or our Intelligence. So it's intended as a measurement of a person's grasp of emotional or human issues, often considered in direct contrast to or entirely separate to their ability or their grasp of technical or intellectual issues. EQ relies on the idea that humans need other humans in order to succeed in general. And our ability to positively interact with other humans is key to our success, or at the very least, it's key to our upper levels of success, our highest success. Now, some simplistic views of EQ talk about it as simply being understanding emotions. But it's talked about as being an understanding of our own emotions as well as the emotions of others. And the key part of this is the understanding of our own emotions. This is not about the measurement of our EQ, but it's talking about the pathway to a greater EQ. By understanding our own emotions, it is the only way we can enhance our ability to understand other emotions. Because everything we see in other humans is a reflection of what we see in ourselves. Our own internal person is the only real benchmark or comparison that we can use to understand someone else. So the more we can understand ourselves, the better we can understand others. And conversely, the less we understand ourselves, the less hope we have of understanding what's going on for other people. Now, EQ is often described in five separate categories of EQ, and these are described as follows. Firstly, self-awareness. It means to know thyself. It means to consider thyself. It means to ask ourselves introspective questions about what we feel and why we feel it. Does it mean psychoanalyzing ourselves? Well, perhaps a little bit, yes. It is about knowing what's going on in our mental and emotional state, weighing it up, assessing it, measuring our emotional condition, both in an abstract sense, a generic or general mood or feeling, but also in the context with specifics, as in in the context of specific people or specific situations, or more correctly, in the context of specific stimuli to which we are responding. So this means that we think about ourselves not just as a general undercurrent of how we feel about nothing in particular, which is in reality merely an aggregation of all of our individual feelings about specific things, but it's also understanding those individual specific emotional responses that we have to any specific stimuli and how our emotional response to those might influence something else. Which brings us to point two, which is self-regulation. 
This stems from knowing our emotional disposition, understanding it as we just talked about with self-awareness. But it also moves on to understanding how we and how our emotions influence our disposition. So self-regulation talks about moderating our behavior, our thoughts, or more specifically, how our emotional situation influences our decisions. It's another way of saying that it helps us to maintain an appropriate kind of interaction with things and people around us. So it means things like not over-responding internally to something, because that leads to externally over-responding or overreacting to things. It means limiting the more extreme emotional influences on our decision-making. It means, for example, controlling things like our impulses. It means how we maintain our integrity and manage our response to temptation, our sense of responsibility and accountability for things, our ability to be flexible and adapt to situations and not react poorly to the new that we arrive at, and also our openness to innovation and new ideas, all comes from our ability to self-regulate our emotional response to all of these stimuli. So people who we regard as being responsible, flexible, able to handle new ideas, and with a high sense of integrity, are people who are well self-regulated. Point three is motivation. This is about our ability to direct our energy, our willingness to convert an intention or a desire into action, action being the investment of energy. We might want a cup of coffee, but will we get up out of our chair and go on and make it? So it's a willingness to equate the investment of energy with the reward that it will bring or the satisfaction aligning success satisfaction with the need to perform. So motivation is about understanding that to succeed, we must exert. It's the opposite of thinking or expecting that if we're able to manipulate or wait long enough, the good things will come to us. Motivation is about being ready to act, willing to act, and expecting success from that action. Positive expectation. Now, these first three things are intrapersonal, that is, within ourselves. It's our internal consistency and our internal understanding of EQ. The next two are the externalizations of that. So point four is empathy. This is about seeing all the three things we just talked about in other people. It's about knowing their feelings perceiving their feelings, looking for and acknowledging the signs of emotional influence on the decision-making of others, and then responding and adapting to the presence of those emotions in other people. It's taking feelings into account. It's things such as wanting to meet the needs of others, their emotional needs, helping them to improve their condition or their disposition. It's about accepting the differences in different people. Once we understand or accept that there is different emotional contributors from one person to another person on their decisions, we can accept those differences between them. As we accept those differences, we can accept all differences between people. But it's also being sensitive to the power relationships that can evolve from that. And generally trying to understand others. 
The fifth point is more broadly our social skills. Now, this is a catch-all. This is the application of everything we've talked about in the first four points in a variety of ways and with a variety of means. It's the artful use of knowledge in the moment for positive outcomes. The artful use of knowledge. About what? Knowledge about other people in the moment, their emotional condition right now, what's relevant in the moment. And using that knowledge and awareness for positive outcomes. So our social skills relate to our ability to influence others for positive gain. Our ability to lead and show leadership. Our ability to inspire others. It's about using our capacity for human interaction to achieve things, both for us to achieve and for them to achieve. Which means it's about our communications, our ability to communicate, to communicate effectively and positively for mutual benefit. Our ability to bond with others and to form relationships. A bonding being a positive intent for the betterment of others in both directions. And in the reverse, resolving conflict. So when we can't positively bond, where conflict exists, our social skills are how we resolve that conflict and create an opportunity for bonding. It's basically how we work together to achieve things collectively, collaboratively, where the final success is greater than the sum of the parts. So means it's all about aiding and helping team dynamics. So from all of this, we can see that the fundamentals of EQ is at the very core of leadership and team success. It's a blueprint for how to succeed with people and how to succeed for people. And that is another way of describing project management. How to succeed with people, how to succeed for people, project management. But EQ is not just about the ideal situation. It's not just about how we behave when everything's easy. It's not just about how we make the most of the positive situations and understand others and influence others and do good things and have good things happen. Emotions are pretty simple or they're pretty positive and useful when things are going well. It's when things get tough that our EQ really matters and that's when it's really tested. And that's when our real strength and discipline on our ability to fully and truly understand ourselves and others is revealed. Because our emotions are far more troublesome on our decision-making when our negative emotions are the dominant ones. It's then we most need our skills to self-analyze, to be aware of our state, to be aware of these negative emotions and how they will manifestly influence our decisions in perhaps destructive ways, damaging ways. And our ability to regulate the impact of those negative emotions on our decision making. That is a true test of our EQ capability internally. And similarly, our ability to recognize this in others, to know when other people have powerful negative emotional influences on their decision making and our ability to make allowances for it, to empathize with them, but also to help them manage it for a more positive outcome, to help interact with them for a more positive outcome rather than to exacerbate it or potentially make it worse. But our use of EQ happens all day, happens every day. Every time we interact with someone, some degree of our EQ is used. It never stops. We do it 
subconsciously, so subconsciously, that it can make it very difficult for us to change and improve. Whatever we do right now with EQ is most likely the accumulation habits of our entire lifetime. If we're going to change this, well, first of all, we need to understand the mechanisms of EQ. But secondly, we need a reason to change. We need an awareness of the benefits of improving our EQ, of at least making some attempt to think about it. And often examples work well here. If we look at those around us, those we've worked with uh, or those we've encountered, whom we know have self-regulated emotions and that their self-awareness, their self-regulated emotions, their ability to empathize with our emotional conditions, when we know that that has been good for us, when we can see the correlation between their skills in EQ and our positive gain, which has reciprocated to become their positive gain. Those people will exist. You'll see them. They'll usually stand out. Our intention should be to see those skills, to recognize those strengths, to emulate the ones that we enjoy, to adopt the attitudes from their examples that we appreciate and that we wish to, but also to find our own path, our own definition of good EQ, one that works for us, one that we can own and continue to explore. So a good EQ is not simply a handy and useful idea for project success. It's not just another tool to put in our toolbox. It will typically have more impact on our career and our personal success than any knowledge of project management methods. Our EQ often sets our upper limits of success, the maximum that we will achieve. It does this because it sets the maximum to which we can be trusted. Trust is a primarily emotional condition and it's a responsive condition. People will trust us based on what their feelings tell us, tell them they should trust us. So if we cannot trust our emotions and how those emotions influence our decisions and shape us and our conduct and our external perspective, if we can't trust that, then others won't trust that either. And if they can't trust our emotions and our emotional influence on decisions, then they won't trust us fully either. And if they won't trust us that much, then the biggest and most important projects, the most important responsibilities and opportunities, they will go to someone else, someone who can and does encourage a greater, more complete sense of trust. It's often argued how much IQ and EQ with respect to each other, how much they relate to personal and career success. This is about knowledge versus conduct, IQ versus EQ. And some researchers and, and some psychologists have said that uh, the role of IQ versus EQ can be as distorted as being 10% to 90%, where only 10% is our raw intelligence and as much as 90% might be our ability to interact. But Few people think that the power of IQ is more than perhaps 25% of our success, which means that in that example, 75% or at least well over half of our long-term success as a person will be far more determined by our EQ. Surely that's a good enough reason to think about how we might improve upon it. This brings us to the end of Lecture 3B.
Hello and welcome to lecture 3C of MGI 514 Project Management Professional. My name is Brenton Birchmore and this discussion is going to be about the finer points of conflict between people. To understand conflict in this context, let's first look at some of the root causes, the fundamental principles behind where conflict comes from. What is it that puts people at odds with other people? Now, at its most fundamental level, conflict is technically a desire for some kind of difference which has found motivation for the person who feels the difference. By difference, we mean they want something to either be different from what it is now or they fear that it's going to be different from what it is now and they don't want that difference. So it's either a difference they want or a difference they don't want. When it's something they don't want, it is usually based in a fear of something that will be lost to them, something they enjoy, appreciate, or value, which may be taken away. And of course, desire for something they want can be opportunism or some benefit that they feel they can and should have. But just wanting something different is not enough to trigger what we term a conflict. There needs to be a sufficient motivation to invest in bringing that difference to life, bringing that alternative, bringing that thing that they want into being. Now, of course, we can have passive conflict. We can have the unrevealed, the unmotivated desire for something different. And yes, those things can still impact our project. Uh, they can look at some of the minor decisions, the minor points of influence, the attitudes, the passive, unrevealed, unmanifested, subconscious forms of conflict that don't come to the surface. And yes, in some cases, those can be rather different, but they're usually handled in a different way. They're potential conflict that hasn't manifested itself in that way. And it could manifest itself. These emotional motivators can manifest themselves in a variety of ways, and they are handled in a different way with a different method. So for this discussion, let's focus on the expressions of conflict. So if its origin is about a desire for some difference, how is that necessarily a bad thing? What makes a desire for something different to be considered a conflict? Well, first of all, we need to have differing views between important contributors. Conflict, by definition, is a form of opposition between two different intentions. But more importantly, it's the exertion of some kind of force towards an outcome that two or more people demonstrate that causes the conflict. It's that force, that effort, that investment of energy and motivation towards a particular outcome. That's when we technically have a conflict. So we can begin by looking at how any force or investment of energy is focused by the person involved in order to best understand how we might respond to that. This means we can address conflict in two major ways. We can address it symptomatically or causally. What we mean by that is that we can address the symptoms of conflict by addressing the nature of how their emotional investment is expressed, that expression of energy and intent and desire to shift and change things. We can address that in and of itself. Or causally, we can address the cause of the desire for change. We can get right down to the root reasons why that particular person is wanting that particular change. Now, these are not mutually exclusive. 
but they represent a focus of how we go about it. And it's fairly obvious to say that if we have a symptomatic approach to the resolution of conflict, just resolving how people bring out their investment of energy towards a conflict, it can be a little bit short-sighted and it can be limited. It might be enough in the short term, but it's about dealing mainly with the way in which that difference is being expressed. And sometimes that difference that a person wants to express, the trigger for the conflict, sometimes it's valid. Sometimes it's only the expression of it or the manifestation of that desire which is less valid. So someone might have a valid point, but they're just going about it all the wrong way. So whilst the problem might be the conduct of the conflict, the issue will be something underneath it which is causing it, which still needs to be resolved, but just perhaps in a more constructive way. So the choice here is whether or not we intend to address that root cause at all. If we don't, then we have to accept that later that cause may rise again. Now, hopefully more constructively, but possibly more destructively. And if all we're doing is dealing with the outcomes of conflict, then we may just be continually fighting fires that we allow to keep smoldering and to return later. Or we can choose to respond more to the root cause of that difference, that different intention, and we can expect and hope that as we evolve that, evolve that manifestation of that intention, that the way in which the conflict is being conducted may also evolve and improve. So in most cases, dealing with the root cause is more important. Anything which motivates someone to exert force to cause a conflict in this way, it will typically continue to motivate them in some way in the future. Another way to say this is that whilst we might stop a battle, we might not stop the war. That just generally means we're going to have another battle about it in the near future. So true conflict resolution is about resolving that initial difference which is motivating the force of investment by either party for the conflict. So now that we're talking about resolving the differences, there are always two sides to that question. It's the difference between what and what. Now, a big and common problem that can arise in conflict resolution is to assume that the new perspective or the new difference that's being sought or proposed is the wrong one, that the status quo somehow has precedence or has uh, a right to exist. And the new entrant or the new investment of energy is the source of problem for the conflict. That's not always the case. From an altruistic perspective, either difference, either side of the intent is equally valid until it's properly determined. So this means that our conflict resolution strategy must be prepared to deal with both sides of the equation and both sides of the cause of the conflict. This is the essence of fair resolution, the ability and the intention, the policy of looking at all sides of the intent and the belief and the desire. And as a trait in and of itself, this policy and, and intention towards a fair and balanced resolution, that alone can temper the amount of force that gets invested in a conflict. When people believe and trust that both differences involved in a conflict are going to be resolved fairly or are going to be addressed fairly, they will be less likely to inject more force. Usually this is because people will inject more force depending on their belief of how much force is needed. And if they are lacking trust that their perspective will be handled fairly, they will be more inclined to want to inject more force into their intention of bringing their result to fruition. 
So a resolution policy, when it is trusted by the parties, can reduce conflict to merely a discussion of differences. And differences are healthy. We're not trying to say that we shouldn't have them and we should stamp them out. Positively constructed differences of opinion, differences of intent, differences of desire are healthy things in most business and even project organizations. One of the important elements here is the leader of the project or of the group as an example. That means that as a leader, we don't want to inject too much force ourselves into any potential desires or differences that we have. And therefore, others will be less likely to inject force in the same vein. Another aspect of conflict, when we are a project leader, the force of the conflict and where it is directed is significant. The more that someone's force and effort and investment is directed at us as the project leader, the less power we have as project leader to resolve it. So understanding clearly where the force is truly directed at any conflict helps determine our response. For example, if it's a difference of, of opinion or difference of desire or intent between two different parties, we need to be clear about that is or isn't directed at us. And have we expressed a perspective which is aligned with one of those parties? Have we or are we perceived to have taken sides? So if we have this force of investment exchange between two other people, it puts us in a potentially neutral situation and one that we should protect and be careful of. Because as a leader, neutrality is our most powerful tool in resolving conflict. We have the chance to leverage trust from both parties in order to broker a possible resolution. And that's provided we don't take a side if we haven't already. Once we do, we become a party to the conflict. We become a party to the force that's being exerted. We become a target of that force. It gets applied to us. And this is very different from having a view on the resolution. We have a stake in the outcome, and it completely changes the dynamics of our role. We might believe in one side of the conflict or the other. We might have an opinion, and we might favor it. But we might not empower that in the beginning. Because the moment we do, we have taken a side. And then it becomes between us and them. And all the power we might have had from neutrality has gone. We are now a negotiating partner in the conflict itself. And as we talk about some of the techniques in a moment, it will make it far more difficult for us as a leader to leverage some of those techniques. We will need to call on external forces to assist. Now, when someone becomes party, a party in a conflict, they become part of what they normally expect will be a win-lose outcome scenario. And it's this fact, this positive-negative outcome, that causes people to overinvest in their position in the conflict. This is where stubbornness comes into play. Overinvestment can become exponentially harder to resolve because it can be self-fulfilling. Once a person overinvests and even subconsciously realizes that they've overinvested, it can be a very difficult precipice for them to emotionally and psychologically step back from. The ability emotionally for a person to recognize that they've overinvested in their cause and step back from it is typically diametrically opposite to the emotional state that took them there in the first place. That's what makes it so difficult. So we want to look for the source, the cause of the difference, which has prompted this investment of force and energy. And by both parties, not just one party, and before anybody overinvests and becomes difficult to pull back. How do we do that? Well, typically, 
Our starting point, the most useful tool, is questions. Anyone in the midst of a conflict is typically psychologically and intellectually ready to attack and defend, but they're not so ready to inquire. The mindset for inquiry and response to inquiry is quite different from the mindset of attack and defend. In attack and defend mode, our minds tend to shut out the inquiry process. And that inquiry process, that curiosity, that acceptance of new thoughts is often essential to us understanding the merit or the, the concept of the alternative perspective, that other side of the conflict that we are actually busy constructing our attack upon or busy constructing our defense to it. These two mindsets don't coexist well. This raises the important issue of perspective. Some differences between the parties, which might create a conflict, are more of a difference in perspective than being a difference in substance. Now, sometimes these can be more easily resolved, but only if we know that it's a difference of perspective and not a difference in substance. And only a process of inquiry can adequately reveal that fact if it's true. So questions are our tool to uncover what we can as the neutral party when we are, to fully understand the nature of this conflict or difference. Is it perspective or is it substance? Inquiry should always be our first path. So once we clearly define what is and what is not each perspective, we can clarify the exact nature of the difference between the two parties, the root cause being the difference. Clarify it precisely as best we can by asking the right questions, not by threatening, but by curiosity-based inquiry. So we don't ask for justification. We don't ask somebody to defend themselves. We don't ask someone. Our inquiry process is not about saying, tell me why you think this is a good idea. No, it's a case of tell me more about what this means to you. And ask for comparative discussion. How does your idea compare with this other idea? What are the differences between them? Now, of course, initially, you're going to get a lot of the attack and defend ideas. But the more you ask the questions and the less threatening those questions are, the more information, the more useful information you can gain. Now, in this early stage of inquiry, it's usually more valuable to have each party answer questions based on their own perspective and avoid them discussing the other person's perspective. Because if they're aware that there's an alternative or a competing view, most of their thought process and mindset about that view will be biased. It won't be balanced. And having them discuss the other idea is usually only going to reinforce in their minds the reasons why their idea is better. What we want them to first do is thoroughly elucidate and explain and, and reveal what is their perspective and their idea. So a fair inquiry will search for the specifics and the context of both positions. And sometimes this reveals gaps that are perspective more than being substantial. But what about when the differences are real, when they are substantial and when they're meaningful? What are our options in how we might tackle it? Well, there are three basic options that we look at in terms of resolution, and they depend upon how empowered or how involved that neutral third party is in this. And we're hoping as project leader that we have a role to play as the third party. But the first step is typically negotiation. This is where the two different sides attempt to find a resolution. It's often thought of as a compromise process, but a compromise process is divisive. Compromise process essentially means that everyone is a little bit successful, but also everyone fails a little bit as well. Everyone's a half a winner, half a loser. 
people will focus on the losing side of that arrangement and how it came out. So compromise through negotiation is often going to leave lingering negativity. And that negativity can be a motivating, motivating source for further investment on conflict later. It's a bit like the difference between coordination and collaboration. When a conflict is resolved by compromise through negotiation, the two parties might coordinate their efforts thereafter. But a collaboration is a process of creating together a new thing, a new perspective, a combination, constructive combination of both sides' intent and desire. So it's the creation of some new outcome rather than a halving of existing ideas. What this can mean is that parties can then both contribute to the creation of something that they might both feel a sense of ownership of, a sense of investment in something that they've contributed to, and it can create more positive outcomes rather than being partially negative. However, sometimes negotiation is just a process of give and take, and the role of the leader in that sense is to ensure that it concludes satisfactorily. So as third parties in that scenario, we don't take sides, we don't exert influence. The resolution of the issue is our main goal. But what about when that doesn't work, when negotiation isn't successful? And usually that's because the parties involved cannot adequately see the other party's position. They cannot give anything to succeed in negotiation because they cannot see enough reason for them to give enough to find a negotiated compromise. Mediation is the next step. Now, mediation is mainly about helping the parties to get clarity on the other perspective, the alternative perspective. That's the key thrust of mediation. And unlike the earlier steps, where our inquiry focused on talking about only their position, this subsequent step of mediation, we now get them to focus on their understanding of the alternative position. And we still use inquiry as a significant and powerful tool. A person answering questions, even highly leading questions, is going to be far more open to new ideas and to changing in their mindset than someone who's making statements. So this is sometimes best presented as a method for the avoidance of doubt. Conflicting parties usually don't want to hear about any legitimacy of the opposing view. But we do need to make sure that there is clarity about what those two views are. The point is to try and reduce defensive thinking, which isn't really thinking at all, which is kind of the problem with it. It's a lack of thinking. Defensive thinking is actually better described as aggressive thinking. It's focusing on their version of the positive and focusing on the other version of the negative. It's focusing on what suits their intent and their motivation. That's why we call it aggressive thinking. So the mediator has no real power other than the fact that they are neutral, other than the fact that with their neutrality, they have the power to make inquiry and demand answers. That's the true power of the mediator, to have their questions answered. And through appropriate questioning and inquiry, they can trigger thought processes in either party, which helps that party come to realization that there is more validity than just their idea. But the mediator can't make a decision to resolve this. It's still up to the parties involved in the conflict to make a decision for the resolution. But sometimes even that is not enough. Sometimes we still have a conflict that people are willing to invest in. So what now? The next step is typically arbitration. And here, the third party is empowered. But 
the third party is actually empowered by the conflicting parties to make a binding decision on all concerned. Now, we might think that the power comes from elsewhere. We might think that the power comes from management or the company or the executive or the authority of our position to make a unilateral decision and resolve this like a judge. But in reality, the only way we can get the conflicting parties to de-invest, to uninvest in their conflict is if they accept the power of the arbitrator over them i.e. if they agree to accept the result or the decision. And we need to make sure that if we are taking a role as arbitrator, that we have their buy-in and their commitment to abide by the decision. Because if we don't, then we're not going to have a lot of success. And even though we might think we're arbitrating, if they haven't accepted it, they will go back to the drawing board and try and find some new way of expressing their force and energy to continue the conflict in another direction. But the process is still the same as it has been up until now. We still need to hear the details and the clarity from all sides. And we need to do so fairly. We need to clearly get the opposing views. But then, at some point, we make a decision. And the success of that will come from the acceptance of our power over the conflicting parties. Plus the extent to which we inquired and fully understood the issue and the balance and fairness to which we did that, the breadth of factors that we took into account, and finally, how we presented our decision and our answer and our reasons for it. All of these things will be factors in the success of that arbitration. So when we present any answer or decision or judgment, it needs explanation, but not necessarily justification. There's a little bit of a difference. People who lose out or feel that they've lost out often ask for things, ask for an explanation in a way that is more of a request for a justification. But we want to explain, but not necessarily defend. We want to be honest about the differences and how we've made our decision. This is about gaining acceptance for that explanation. Now, we are trying to get each party to agree and get their buy-in and acceptance for the adjudication. But if we can't, we at least need to understand what degree of opposition they might have to it. But despite all of this and all of these tactics and ideas, the most effective conflict resolution is avoidance of the investment of energy in the first place. And one of the best tools for that is our reputation as a leader. If people know that we're not a fool, we're not silly, we're not easily or unduly influenced by the wrong things, we're not unduly influenced by raw emotion and raw energy invested in a conflict. If they know that we will explore it thoroughly and we will uncover truths and untruths and resolve them as such, if they know that we will do it fairly and balanced and that we will make a tough decision if we have to, then knowing all of that, people around us will be less likely to invest in a conflict because it will be less likely to be worthwhile in achieving an outcome. This means, fundamentally, that our basic EQ, our emotional intelligence, will be directly proportional to the degree of conflict we have over time in our project. The more emotional intelligence we have and demonstrate and display so that others understand it, the less conflict we will have and the easier our conflict will be to resolve. This is the end of Lecture 3C.
Hello and welcome to Lecture 3D of MGI 514 Project Management Leadership. My name is Brenton Birchmore and politics is what we are about to cover. So let's first clarify what we mean by politics in this context. We're talking about the context of uh, business, commercial and organisational situations relating to projects and project leadership. So, okay, what is politics? Well, the definition that we work with on politicking, that is the process of being involved proactively in politics, we call it this. The, it is the influence over the discretionary power of other people. Let's break that down a little further. Discretionary power. So it's the power that other people have that is their decision on how to apply or use that power. It's the things that they can decide what to do. And politicking is to be able to influence that power, that discretionary power that they have. For example, if somebody has power over certain resources, uh, there might be a desire to have influence over them and the decisions they might make regarding that resource. Now, like most definitions, when you break it down to its core components, it's not necessarily an evil thing. But politicking is often associated with negative connotations. It's often associated with self-interest. But it could easily or equally be associated with group interest. And it's the difference between these two that is very often the cause of our either negative or positive response to politicking. So to judge or evaluate politicking, it's the concern for the consequences of it and the fairness with which it is conducted that usually determines its moral value. Now, it's unrealistic and altruistic to think that we can avoid politicking or that it shouldn't happen in any commercial organization or any business situation. The fact is that it is a element of human nature. Are we going to ask or require that people will not want to influence others? Of course they will. It's inescapable that there'll be desire and intent to want to influence the power that others wield. So the concept and process of politicking is a natural element of human behavior, regardless of the situation that it's in. And whilst it's normal for it to be often seen as associated with personal gain, it isn't necessarily the case. Another negative element that we've come to associate with politicking is that we use it, or it is often used, as an alternative to true substance or true value in any positioning or argument or source of influence. So politicking is perceived often as a way of subverting influence of tricking or deceiving people into using their influence in the, in the wrong way or in an unsubstantiated way. So yes, of course we should want to be trying to work via honest representation of value and intent rather than distorting facts and distorting information in order to gain influence. But this distortion of politicking is a separate thing. It's not part of the technical process of politicking. It's perhaps because of the fact that politicians and those that spend a lot of their careers in politicking often do distort facts and has given us this uh, appreciation of why they do it. But here we're looking strictly at the mechanics and want to assess how and when we can apply them in a positive sense. So put simply, the core ingredients to positive politicking 
are the same core ingredients that we assign to positive leadership. These are the principles of EQ, of emotional intelligence. This is fair judgment, integrity, and ethics. These are the definitions of leadership or the elements of leadership and their definition that we've looked at already. Definition being social influence for a collective goal. So if we take that simple definition of social influence for a collective goal, then politicking is just another method or another process of doing that, of achieving influence through social means, but for a collective goal, not for a singular goal. And this is often the key distinction between positive and negative politicking. So politicking can be seen as an extension of the normal definition of leadership, where within leadership, we're talking about those people whose subscription to us we're looking for actively, the sphere or the bubble of influence that is more direct in nature. But politicking is an extension of that leadership influence to those that are outside of those we would normally be expecting to subscribe to our vision and our goals. And we use politicking as an extension of our leadership to gain positive influence over their discretionary power to the benefit of our vision, our goals, and our objectives. And if we do this with the same fair judgment, the same integrity, and the same ethics, then we can do it in an entirely positive way. So if we're not using undue influence to achieve our aims, we're using appropriate influence, then it is a kind of subscription to the visions and goals that we are representing. And this is echoing something we've already said. When we are representing a larger vision or goal and we're using politics as an influence to further and benefit that goal and we're doing so openly and honestly with integrity and ethics, then we can do so positively. But we have to remember that when somebody allows themselves to be influenced and agrees to apply their discretionary power, they're doing it usually for their own emotional reasons, in the same way that anyone who follows a leader does so for their own reasons. And maybe it's because they value the golden objective that's being represented. Maybe they want that vision to succeed. They feel it will be good for them. They feel an emotional and positive benefit. Or maybe it's something a little more specific. Maybe it's something that does more specifically benefit them. But when it starts to seem a little bit more like a direct reciprocation, a direct quid pro quo arrangement, where there is a trading of favors, we have to be more careful. Because if we're trying to ensure that the benefits we are receiving benefit the larger vision that we are representing as the leader of that vision, that project, then we need to be careful that we're not rewarding other people for their influence in a more personal, unique, specific, segregated way that might be considered questionable or unethical. So we want to make sure that we don't allow us and our politicking arrangements to get dragged into someone else's lack of good judgment or lack of integrity or lack of ethics, at least not without knowing that that's what's happening. So in summary, if we are looking to adhere to the values that we already espouse in leadership and we express passion for our vision and our goals to other people and we seek their help to further those goals, then our politics can be considered very positive. It's along the lines of what we might envision of a campaigner for a charitable cause, where the cause is considered just and positive, but the work they actually do is often simply politicking. The main difference is often in simply the benefactor. Who is the benefactor? 
Selfish politics serves individuals, often at the expense of larger groups or other people. And people who would practice that a lot are often good at making people think that those goals serve them as well, but perhaps they don't, or at least not to the same extent. Now, if we want to avoid that negative connotation or that negative criticism, the best and only defense we have is in the way in which we communicate. We need to have clear, unambiguous, open communications. There may be those who have competing goals, competing objectives, or who are looking to gain that same discretionary power that other people have, but looking to direct it for their efforts, for their goals, for their vision and outcomes, and they're in competition with ours. And they may use less than ethical methods to smear or to bring ill repute to what we're trying to do. So our communications is the only element we have to protect ourselves from that. And if it's not strong and effective, it's the point of weakness that someone else can leverage and use against us when we're trying to seek positive influence. So this means our communications need to be open and honest. Things like conversations behind closed doors, things like obfuscation that confuses the meaning or double meanings, all these things have an opportunity to lead us into troubled waters and make it difficult for us to have positive, open politicking. There is a big difference between manipulation and influence. Influence is not negative in nature. Influence can be positive. It can be mutually beneficial. Manipulation is the use of deceit and trickery and untruths to unfairly influence another person. So what about when we might be defending the influence that we have gained against others who are using politicking to work towards their own objectives, which might be at odds with us? Well, we must make sure that we are working with and sharing a clear vision of what our goals are. Because the first point of attack we need to avoid is to make sure that no one can distort what we are actually representing, the vision and goals that we are representing. And if we have very clearly and publicly presented that, it's a lot harder for someone to distort that information. So project the clear expression of our goals and your vision clearly, often and broadly, so there's no doubt about it. The simplest way to avoid having criticism, unfair criticism, stick to us is simply by being honest. When we're not, or when it's not obvious that we are being honest, we give others leverage to create doubt and confusion in the minds of other people. And they might use that leverage to seek their influence for the, their own purposes. So this means we might choose to keep meetings open, avoid unnecessary private meetings, avoid quiet and secretive discussions. The more information is open and shared and clear, the harder it is for someone else to distort it and twist it to their own purposes. It also means we do other things that are natural parts of using and having a good emotional intelligence. It means, we, for example, we don't use gossip. We don't participate in gossip. We use pure conflict resolution techniques rather than complaints about people that they can't respond to. It means we don't speculate about something with another person when we have the opportunity to just directly ask. We work with the facts, with the truth, not with the speculation. And we don't let others speculate about us, about our thoughts and visions, when we have the opportunity to express them. And by expressing them, we avoid the opportunity for others to speculate about us. And when we spend time fairly with those who are producing outcomes as well as those who appear to have the power and the influence, then our interests, our goals and our visions 
and the effort we've gone to to secure support for that will actually be protected and defended by all those who've made the investment, not leaving all of that protection and defence up to us. This brings us to the end of Lecture 3D. Hello and welcome to Lecture 3E of MGI 514 Project Management Leadership. My name is Brenton Birchmore and today we're going to have a look at how different personalities might be relevant in project leadership. Now when we think about different personalities, we often think about stereotyping and pigeonholing people into certain categories. Really there's no such thing as personality types. We humans try to break things down into categories of things that are different from other things. The reality with human beings is that we are all a bit of everything. We are all part of this, part that, part something else. And so when you look at any of those personality assessment processes, they're always going to give you a rating or a value or an answer in all of the categories. They're never usually going to say that, well, you're definitely this and you're not that. And so the beginning of our thinking when it comes to how personalities might affect the way in which we go about our leadership of the project is to say that we can't rely on simply thinking of people as being a personality. Every person is a meld of different personalities. More than that, any person is only a particular mesh of personalities in any given moment and only in subject to any particular stimuli or influences. And on another occasion, in another set of circumstances with a different set of influences, will exhibit a slightly different mix of personality traits. So how is this useful to us then? Why are we even considering? If it's so variable and so flexible and so uncertain, what's the point? Well, when we start to look at how these stereotypes and how these personality traits are formed, they look at a couple of different core functions of human behavior that do in fact follow loose set of guidelines. So we look at in particular, motivations, and we look at decision-making. And out of these two things, we can see some patterns of behavior and patterns of thinking. So if you think of human behavior, all human behavior is a combination of programming, internal programming of the mind, and the situation that is being assessed. So the situation is the external factors outside of our mind and our thinking, and our own programming is the accumulated habitual response and the way in which we tend to think about things such as the situation that we're in. So hence, this predictability arises where you find people have patterns of behavior where in a range of similar situations, they will behave in a similar set of ways. And this is because of the programming, the internal programming, but every programming is unique. It's unique to that individual. It's just the way each person thinks about it. The point behind trying to understand a person's internal programming can possibly predict their response to any new situation. But why would we want to do that? Well, a project, as we've already covered, is little more than a billion decisions that need to be made well, carefully, and correctly. And a lot of the people that are going to be making those decisions or contributing to those decisions are people that we need to interact with as part of this project. So a person's programming and the predictive nature of how they might respond to a situation 
will give us a great degree of potential insight into how they're going to make a decision. But it's not fixed. These are not rules that people follow. They're merely guides, a loose set of guidelines. And it's mostly based on observations of prior activity and prior response. So there's a great degree of interpretation in the prior information that we then use to try and determine what kind of internal mental programming a person might have. But what if we don't have a wealth of prior experience with an individual in order to base our model of predicting how they might respond to a new situation? What if we don't have all of that? Can we build a predictive pattern based on an obscure set of facts, based on an answer to a questionnaire or a survey? Well, within certain limits, we sort of can because it's one of the strongest habits of human nature and human thinking that relates to how we make decisions. Of all the things we tend to do within our own minds on a repeated basis, decision-making does tend to be one of the more consistent ones. The reason for this is because what defines one person's decision-making criteria as being different from another person's decision-making criteria or process is about how we prioritize the contributing factors. So when we make a decision, obviously we we can or should try to take everything into account. Our mind is trying to contemplate the broad enormity of potential that might be relevant to this decision. But we're going to assign priorities. We're going to attach priorities to each individual element. And once we get to a point where our priorities are too small to even think about it, we won't think about it, which means we don't take it into account. So understanding how we prioritize things is going to give us a great deal of insight into how we make decisions. I mean, for example, some people will prioritize person's feelings over other things. Some people will prioritize outcomes over feelings. Some people will avoid feelings. Some people will prefer to step away and and not engage. Some people will prefer to confront and to tackle head on. Some people will prefer to make assumptions. Some people will prefer to chase every last fact. In some ways, we call this a style. It's a kind of blueprint or a pattern for decision-making behavior. But it's merely an expression of how we make our decisions based on what's important to us. So if we're trying to find rules or patterns in decision-making, there are a few things we need to consider. The first is, when you're considering patterns in decision-making behavior, is that there are plenty of exceptions. We cannot assume that a person who we think is typically going to respond in a certain way based on prior behavior is going to meet our assumptions and respond that way. So the first thing is there's always exceptions and we've got to be ready for those. The second is that any pattern that we might think applies to a person, it's based on a set of interpretations that's going to be inaccurate. We're going to get surprises. We're going to have the unexpected. It's not going to be clear cut. The third is that people change, people evolve, their style of change, what's important to them changes. Changes due to what they experience in life and what consequences they suffer. And it will realign what's important to them and therefore it will realign how they go about making their decisions. So anything that we apply that says, well, this person is of this personality, they have this style of decision making, be prepared to change that. Be prepared to be flexible with what that is in the future. Fourth thing to think about is that no predictive strategy that tries to estimate how a person might go about making a decision and how their personality 
might manifest itself in any given situation, it is never as useful as dealing directly with that person and having the right kind of interactive dialogue that understands exactly what is important to that person and exactly how they're making the decision. No predictive strategy can ever substitute or should ever substitute for direct interaction. So what contributes to our style, our behavior when it comes to decision making? Well, typically all of our decisions and how we go about them are based on our perception of the consequences. This is an important point. It's not based on the truth of the consequences. It's not based on the consequences as we, the project manager, sees them. It's not based on the consequence that someone else sees or is the aggregate of everyone's contribution. It's based on that individual's perception of what the consequences of a decision might be. So this means that a person's natural habits of perception, how they habitually perform the function of perception will be the first big influence on how they go about the decision making. Some people tend to grab onto their first conclusion and run with it and defend it. Some people are more inclined to test assumptions and test their perception. It's related directly to how much a person is willing to absorb information and allow that information to be relevant to them. People who will absorb less information are going to rely on very early perception of consequences that may be further from other people's perception or reasonable perception of consequences. But other people who are quite prepared or willing to absorb or want to absorb more information are going to have a more refined perception of consequences. And whether they do or don't is often part of their habit and their personality. So it's a person's relationship with their information, their, their pursuit or their care for truth and detail. Or another way of saying it is their propensity for assumption. It will determine the variability of their response to any decision-making stimulus. So low-detailed people are more likely to react to the surface facts, the stated story. They'll take things at face value. So moving past the degree of investigation as one contributing factor, there are then the priorities for the decision-making. And once again, it's consequence that is a primary motivation. And what they point to is underlying emotional influences on that person's thinking. Now, when we start to look at emotional influences driven by consequences, the most powerful of these is typically fear. Now, fear, although it's a strong word and it's usually used in a powerful context, it actually has a wide range of applications. You can have a tiny bit of fear, and we have other names for that. We might call that apprehension. We might call that a little bit anxiety. Uh, we'll have different names for it. And, of course, at the other end, there's uh, words like terror that we use where something is extremely fearful. It's all the same emotion in the context of how it's going to apply to decision-making. It's the same emotion, just to different degrees. And the reason we think of it as the same emotion from a decision-making point of view is because all it is is a measure of reticence. It's a measure of reluctance. It's a measure of how much they do or don't want that particular consequence at an emotional level. Or it's a measure of how prepared they are to face that consequence. Now, in most business environments, in most commercial situations, which is where most projects find themselves, the modern world, fear, to whatever extent, is usually an emotional response to a lack of power and or knowledge about how to handle a threat. So for a person to be having fear as a contributor to their decision making, first of all, there needs to be something in the situation as a possible consequence that they perceive may be a threat. 
And the fear comes out of their lack of knowledge or power about how to handle that threat. So as an example, you could imagine someone who knows and believes that a given situation might be not to their liking or a consequence might be not to their liking, but they can think of a dozen ways that they can handle that uh, and that they don't have fear about what they're going to do about it. They know what they're going to do about it and they know that they can do something about it. And that person might have less fear involved in their decision-making. And the reverse is also true. We can imagine the reverse of people who have uh, reacted with fear and it may have happened to us at various times because a particular threat that we have perceived is one that we don't know enough about how to handle it. So in terms of mitigating the effects of fear as an emotional decision-making criteria, as a project leader, we can provide the information that empowers people to have a sense of confidence and surety that whatever threat might be there and however they perceive it, we don't need to de-emphasize the threat or we don't need to convince them that they've got it all wrong and that threat isn't there. What we can do is empower them with a greater degree of knowledge of how they might tackle that threat in a more proactive, constructive way and ease the impact of fear out of the decision-making process. So this is about how we as project leaders need to use the education appropriately to moderate decision-making. And certain people, because of their habits of how they prioritize things, certain people will need more information and more education in order to moderate their decision-making processes. Some people who are more prone to a emotional response based on hidden fears, they will need a more proactive, preempting, preemptive kind of education. Now, how people respond to fear is also partly based on the style or the nature of their personality. Some people will shrink away and hide from it and hope that it passes them. Some people will attack the fear. Some people will attack themselves. And we typically call that stress or distress. These are telltale signs that understanding how people are manifesting their fear will tell us that we need to maybe address the fact that this person has a fear. What is it based on? Or what do we as the leader need to do so that it has a more proportional and more appropriate impact on their decision-making. So with all of that stuff in our minds now, now we can look at something like the HRDQ model of personalities in the workplace. And it's based on a relationship between expressiveness and assertiveness. So let's break those two things down first. Assertiveness is considered to be the amount of effort we put into influencing others. That's assertiveness expressiveness is the effort we make to reveal our emotions to others. So both of these factors are measuring the degree of effort we make, either to influence people or to share our emotional state. Let's put some of the extremes together. Emotionally revealing people who try very hard to influence others. These are what we call rather spirited people. They're full of energy. Those who also reveal their emotions, but they tend to not want to influence people very often. They're emotionally sensitive, but they're not overt about things. We tend to consider them as considerate people. Those who keep their emotions under a lid, but they still want to influence everyone, we often think of them as rather direct in nature. And lastly, those who keep their emotions under, under check and also keep their agenda and influence to themselves, we regard them as being more systematic in nature. They tend to follow their own pattern of behavior with less regard or less interaction with those around them. 
Now, the point about these styles in predictive behavior is in helping us to decide how we might, as a leader of a team, mitigate the potential for extreme response, especially in decision-making. Our goal isn't to control outcomes. It's to allow everyone to be themselves, to conduct themselves normally, but to normalize their response to whatever is going on and avoid the extreme scenarios. Our purpose is to kind of smooth the edges of response and reaction, but to do it proactively rather than reactively. Once a person has engaged within their personality style of responding to something and perceiving and prioritizing and decision-making, then we are already in their loop. Knowing how they tend to go about that and how we might help them do that in a more moderated fashion is essentially part of us helping them demonstrate a higher degree of emotional intelligence. And the most important factors we're looking at to determine how do we help any one person on improving their own emotional intelligence is based on where do they invest their energy? How much of it do they invest in assertiveness and how much of it do they invest in expressiveness? Now, of course, any team that we might have is going to be full of people that have a little bit of everything. The team as a whole is going to be this amorphous blob of opportunity and potential. And this does lead to a few obvious rules we need to think about in how we might have people react to anything. The simplest is that we first should consider how they're going to react to us as the leader. This means our focus should first be on what is our balance of expression or expressiveness and assertiveness. Do we have extremes in either one of those, in our conduct or in our style or in our personality? Because if we have any extremes or if we are prone to extremes in either of those two, we are going to trigger responses and reactions to that in other people, some of it negative. Humans generally respond to human beings, even when there is a wider issue at stake. We might be a representative of this big, enormous thing called a project, but people are going to react as much, if not more, to us as the human than they are to our project, our goal, our vision, or the objectives or the outcomes, anything like that. Even when they are responding to those bigger issues, they're still going to be influenced by how we represent those bigger issues. So human response to our project is going to be greatly influenced by their response to us. And given the fact that people respond emotionally to so many different things, the more we understand how our emotional position and how our own personality can influence other personalities around us, the easier it'll be for us to know how to moderate that and therefore help others moderate their own contribution to the decisions. So as we go through our lives as a project leader, we need to be aware of exactly what stimuli are we creating for others to respond to, which means it's often less about them. It's less about their personality and more about us and how who and what we are affects their personality. So then we can continue to be a leader by leading by example, moderating our own styles and our own personalities, keeping our decision processes moderate, and then we can ask others to try to do the same. This brings us to the end of Lecture 3E.